affiliated. Um, so we have not had given the, the writers a specific fee for this. This is open to whatever they want to do. The only stipulation is that it has to be their own written work. Uh, so from there, we have uh, we wanted to give writers an opportunity to present their own writing, and also by doing so, having an opportunity to present writing and then explore the performative aspects of writing. So uh, we'll get some some writers doing that tonight. Uh, I'm going to introduce to you the four writers and readers for the evening in chronological order. Will be uh, Zed Yulong Zeng. There he is in the tux. Right there. And then after him will be Kara Hansen. Then we'll take a short break in between, and Stephanie Lee Ling and Alex Bovril, right there, will we'll come up after that. So, yeah, this is lit, 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 lit. Uh, we're going to try and make this a bi monthly event, too, so it'll be more and more gin sours. We are featuring uh, famous writers' favorite drink each event. There's also going to be a slideshow, so um, you may have to turn your head slightly at some points. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, or you know, some people have told me that they uh, were told I was going to talk about comedy, um, which is uh, untrue. Uh, just to clear that up right now. Um, the uh, the actual basis of the, the conversation is going to be around, as uh, the title up there says, the function of the image in Marxist consumerism. So uh, what this talk is going to be essentially dealing with is the, uh, the ideas of the Belgian philosopher Guillaume Fusel uh, as he understood uh, the role of uh, uh, Marxism in the production of images, specifically looking at uh, a series made by Andy Warhol uh, known as the Cow Series, wherein uh, he investigates things of uh, sort of factory farming and uh, its image and appearance to the world uh, and how that relates to capital. But what? No, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It is going to be about comedy. Um, next slide, please. So, the title of the talk was, or is, it was supposed to be funny. Comedy, copy, and cynicism. So essentially what this talk is, is it's uh, a collection of, uh, of thoughts and works that uh, I've been kind of getting through in the past maybe year or so. And so uh, there's three sections, comedy, copy, and cynicism. Uh, each one will be kind of uh, headlined by a work, and then uh, we'll go into a little discussion around kind of what the thoughts are in that, and then we'll move to the next, uh, the next selection. So, uh, next slide. Uh, next slide. There we go. 
give you a minute to read that hilarious golden joke right there. <laughs> so, comedy, when written for theater and television, aka Netflix, is separated into two camps. Isn't it funny that, and wouldn't it be funny if, these categories expand, overlap, and interchange, yet they are, for the most part, independent entities. Next slide. Think pseudo-reality television shows like The Office, for the former, and, next slide, kids in the hall characters like The Chicken Lady or The Cabbage Heads, for the latter. While this division describes the possibilities of a scene, it simultaneously makes a divide in comedy that parallels a division in the visual arts. The split between that and if in comedy is mirrored in art as the gap between, next slide, realism and, next slide, distraction. <laughs> it may seem difficult to reconcile these two divisions. You think that's funny now? It's not going to be funny at the end of the time. Like, Shut the fuck up. Um, these two divisions, yet they have core similarities in their goals and intentions. Realism pairs with the isn't it funny that, utilizing observation and existing circumstance as a base, while abstraction and wouldn't it be funny if match up as both rely principally on fabrication and the unreal. This divide in both these fields provides a base similarity in how each endeavor conceives its own inputs and aims. Next slide. Though art's promiscuous gaze has often included humor, and despite the connection of observation versus intention, these two fields appear at odds. What puts them in conflict most overtly is a perceived approach and attitude that the practitioner of either activity must have. Next slide. Art, for most artists, and those who produce discourse around it, is understood as a space of serious observation, production, and study. Comedy, even when pursued with the same level of dedication and consideration, has a base level of irreverence that could be seen as anathema to good art. In short, if comedy were to take itself as seriously as art is perceived to, it would ruin any chance of being funny. The combination of the two would seem to present a dilemma. The dissection and over-intellectualization of humor, or the belittling and ridicule of the hermetic exploration of art. Next slide. Duchamp claimed to have a greater interest in life than in art, and would often forego traditional forms of art production, preferring at times to use comedy, wordplay, and dirty jokes, such as we see here in L-H-O-O-Q. L-H-O-O-Q. She wants to be fucked in the ass. Um, though, his work can hardly be considered humorous now. Layers of caked-on critical analysis common for famous art after years of discussion will inevitably impact the work. In essence, the explanation and intellectualization of comedy in any form leaves what may have been a good idea as a corpse that is both bad art and bad comedy. Next slide. The artist Christopher Williams believes in the fundamental incompatibility of these two fields and goes so far as to include the interdiction of comedy as one of the key pieces of advice he gives to his students. Oh, so wrong, Christopher Williams. Next slide. Christopher Williams. Um, he warns against it in a public lecture, but without any prolonged explanation. It seems as though Christopher Williams is motivated by the ambition of increased longevity for an artwork. As the rest of his list includes embargoes against plexiglass and electronic components, both elements that will not age well. Williams' unspoken assertion seems to be that art is made to last much longer than comedy could ever hope to. This assertion comes from the more than 30 years Williams has worked as an artist 
and his knowledge of what may jeopardize the possible longevity of his work. Next slide. <laughs> it would seem there are different timescales for art and comedy, and this may be the second key element in their compatibility. The lifespan of a joke is much briefer than that of an artwork. While art may outlast its maker, a joke is unlikely to outlast a decade. That artworks have the power to remain relevant and be closely scrutinized for hundreds if not thousands of years beyond their moment of creation is a byproduct of the supposition that an artwork may be used as a tool for explanation, be that of some basic truth about the world or simply as a subjective document of the past. Comedy hardly ever gets to do this job. A joke lives a much more accelerated and effervescent life, not being able to sit as a static composition of materials, but propped up by a specific constellation of social factors that allow it to be understood, and most importantly, allow it to be funny. To use what may be an incorrect metaphor for art and comedy's materiality, next slide, art is like a stack of bricks that grows upwards on top of those laid down before it, and comedy, next slide, is a fog that uses and recombines molecules to change and adjust its shape to the surroundings without such clearly defined advancement. Comedy, except in certain instances that will be discussed later, avoids posterity as it loses its ability to maintain an effective quality and make an audience laugh. To understand a joke, you need to know its reference points. And when these are situated in a continually changing culture, jokes are easily made obsolete. In another metaphor, next slide, Comedy can be thought of as food, which, no matter how good, can't be preserved past its expiration date. In the instances where comedy manages to cheat the threat of obsolescence, most often it exists outside the minutiae of culture. Humor that trades on the physical world, be that the sexual innuendo of Shakespeare, the slapstick of Charlie Chaplin, or officially invasive image of a snowman by a fire, all manage to remain relatable. The legibility of these works remains because we continue to deal with the awkwardness and taboo of our own bodies and understand the basic physical principles of the world. Though these works remain funny, most often they lose their power to induce laughter. Despite these exceptions, comedy and art do move at different speeds. However, they may find a shared moment where they collapse into an instantaneous reception. Comedy relies on an effective reaction. This, or, yeah. this can be more passive as in television, or more active as in stand-up comedy. It is, in all cases, a near instant marker of success or failure. Art, by its nature, has no instantaneous feedback mechanism. However, in the experience of art, its effective component may feel similar to that of a joke. That's good, perfect. Um, this is a really important change. <laughs> Affect skirts past thought and allows snap judgment, not tinged by contextual or, or antecedent information. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, we, yeah that's fine. <laughs> perfect, beautiful. Anything instantaneous in art, however, is always heavily cautioned against because of the romantic idea that art is a home for slower, more considered contemplation. Comedy cannot rely on its place within an academic discourse for, uh, for its appraisal any more than art can rely on its effective qualities. Science, sorry, not science. Art molds to an increasingly scientific <laughs> art molds to an increasingly scientific and profane environment and relies on specific quantifiable measures for its importance. 
To explain a joke ensures it won't be funny. And so comedy that requires theory is fundamentally flawed. Laughter is like affect. No explanation is needed, as it is simply an acknowledgement that something meaningful is occurring in that moment. We may appreciate a work of art or a joke for its intelligence and considered production. However, certain kinds of attraction trade on immediate response. It is perhaps the reason this entire discussion thus far has been in the vernacular of an artistic discourse and not the language of comedy. Comedy need not worry about its relationship to art, whereas art, in its continual anxiety, must worry about its relationship to everything else in the world. True comedy needs no theory or explanation to be understood. It is a creative reworking of the normal world, a copy rightly positioned and framed to use our knowledge to get over our intellect. Copy. So that's a, um, that's a, a suit sewn with bubble wrap uh, after Joseph Boy's suit of um, felt. Because, you know, protecting our works, protecting yourself. Uh, so, copy. Next slide. <clears throat> Arguably, the most well-renowned forger in the t of art in the 20th century was a man named Elmir de Hori, who purportedly produced and distributed over 1,000 forgeries of seminal artists, including Picasso, Matisse, Modigliani, and Degas. <laughs> Other forgers have surpassed him in terms of financial success. However, Elmir has yet to be outshined as a public persona. His notoriety reached its swell after his release from prison due to two subsequent biographical works. First, a film by Orson Welles, and second, a book by Clifford Irving. Like most forgers, Elmer began as an artist, and after having little to no financial success, turned his talent for recreating the works of others into the basis of his career. What makes Elmer an anomaly is his fame, as unlike many other forgers, eventually he became a sought-after artist in his own right, with publicly accredited works selling at upwards of $20,000. This fame changed Elmir from a forger back into an artist, though one stuck in the style of others. The romantic image of the forger that Elmir traded on is readily conjured up when copying is mentioned in regards to art, due to its potential as an interesting narrative. Though the forger may be one of the most essential archetypes in the art world, has in its repertory of stock characters, it is not a character that those who are themselves the productive components of this world are concerned with. Essentially, for artists, curators, and critics, the most pressing branch of creative theft is pegged with the more academic moniker of appropriation. <laughs> well, this genre of copy extols itself as a creative reworking of some other source in order to set itself apart from the well-executed lies that constitute a forgery, these two acts do find one commonality, and they find it in finance as both are consistently at the center of public interrogations around the issues of authorship and ownership. Though a common tool for many artistic practices and the cornerstone of blue-chip artists like Jeff Koons or Richard Prince, the most unique and prescient uh, appropriation in contemporary art, in my opinion, is that of Elaine Studerman. Looks pretty cool. <laughs> well, the objects of her appropriation may implicate her within the art world more than any other artist, she stands apart from others working with appropriation. Studebent takes from within the world of contemporary art, sourcing the work of her own peers and remaking it nearly in tandem with the original. 
Instead of calling images from the larger realm of visual culture, Studebend meaningfully transgresses the assumptions of what appropriation looks like, using art of others as the matrix for her copies, not as simply a foundation on which to make visible her own creative expression. She is a forger, like Elmer, with the lie of authenticity replaced by a staunch, a staunch assertion that her work is not only not a copy, but exclusively of her own creation. As a woman producing facsimiles of art made by some of the most influential men in the art world, Studerband's work is often read through a feminist lens, which is, of course, another means of belittling and closing down the discourse around her practice. This heightened sensitivity towards her specific context in the reading of her work, however, presents an interesting position that copied objects innately carry an autobiographical element of the copyist, and that their intents are distinguishable from the intents of the original that is being copied. While Studerbent may be compared most easily to a forger, her works are made with exacting attention to precise duplication. As her works are made with exacting attention to precise duplication, there are others who stray farther from the original. In these cases, uh, that's a, in case anybody doesn't know this piece, is a David Hammond's um, Selling Snowballs piece uh, being remade by another guy, I think maybe selling under a more reasonable price. Um, in these cases, the reproduction of a work may exist in an entirely new material, and, becomes this, and it becomes this specific choice of medium that reveals the most significant aspect of its maker and their spaces in the world. This act may be viewed as a shallow attempt at self-promotion through other artists. However, in a more generative sense, it can provide a means of updating a work and its meaning for a new period in time. Oh, this, this is a bit early. Um, it's okay, we'll, we'll stick with this. Um, for this attempt at modernization to have any relevance, artists must adhere to one of the fundamental rules within the field of repentance. <laughs> it's a great picture. Um, <laughs> The fundamental rules within the professional field of visual art, the awareness and consideration of the subject past. Art is always involved in a chain of historical connections and dialogues and dialogues. So to make a copy only adds another more direct link to this already existing network, present in any artwork. In the 20th century, the engagement with the antecedent with antecedent works most overtly manifested as attacks on preceding styles of art as can be seen by the series of isms that progressed through the century, each seeking to take down its predecessors. This patricidal tendency in art movements now seems antiquated and generally impossible. Jeff Wall, a photographer who exists as a patriarchal figure to be reckoned with for many artists, puts it aptly as he claims no new forms of art can ever invalidate the previous ones. No matter what happens with internet art, painting will never be made irrelevant. There is nothing you can't do. <coughs> Good little. Let's give you guys a second to read the comic. It's worth a little read through. Okay. Uh, now, previous generations are simply cornerstones within conversations occurring in artistic discourse. The issue with this passive acceptance, however, is that art has become increasingly replete with the recycling of old forms and gestures. This often manifests as history revisited 
but without alteration to confront the present. And so it relies on theoretical discourse to allow this incongruence with the present uh, to, to give it a tacit acceptance in the now. Instead of destroying the base, instead of destroying the base or simply remaking it, it can become a platform allowing a discussion with those beyond the here and now. Copying outright and acknowledging this choice builds a dialogue even if that dialogue is just you yelling at a giant. <laughs> this image of futility makes visible the humor in any potential failure when reaching beyond an individual's place in the world. The audacity to make or take from those who exist in the upper echelons give the maker of the copy and the viewer a cathartic release that sometimes comes out as laughter. The copying art, not the forgery, is akin to the comedic practice of doing an impression. With impressions, as with impressions, there is no attempt to make the others make others believe that the new version uh, is actually the original. The goal is to present a latent quality or to move what is being emulated into a context that is totally foreign to its assumed role in the world. Think Werner Herzog writing poetically nihilistic Yelp reviews. If you press play. Scott, uh, thank you for having me. Forgive me if this is unorthodox, but uh, I'm also staying at the Majestic Hotel and I would like to uh, read you the review I composed for Yelp. <laughs> I lie awake atop the covers of my cool bed. In the absurdly cramped quarters I have procured at the Majestic Hotel. Sweat flows freely from my entire body, tingling under me and soaking the preposterous bag of air and stones that serves as the mattress. A clammy apprehension seizes me as I reach for the thermostat above the nightstand. Am I truly controlling anything? <laughs> Certainly not the temperature. Mankind struggles always to convince itself that machines may give it sway over cold, over heat, but eventually the earth claims every creature, thinking or brainless, and all of us shall share the climate of nothingness. <laughs> I hear a cry and the unmistakable sound of the breaking of a human toe. <laughs> Three stars. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, this disjuncture creates humor when the. Oh, oh, sorry. You gotta push pause. Step. Huh? You gotta push pause. Is this so plain? No, yeah, perfect. And then just go back to? Sorry. No, it's all good. Back? Beautiful, thank you. Uh, back one more. Stephanie? <laughs> back, back one more. Sorry. Back. This one? Back. This one? Beautiful, is it pause? Beautiful, thank you. Sorry about that. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. This, dis <laughs> no, I'm sorry. this disjuncture creates humor when the new position has a level of considered relevance 
and is not simply a random juxtaposition. This is what distinguishes a functioning copy from an illegible one. This newfound legibility can retrieve the subject of emulation from the realm of the sacred and force it into, the, into that of the profane. The copy of an artwork provides a concrete reminder that they are not holy objects, but compositions of materials made by human hands. Again, we return... Oh, sorry, we're already here. Sorry. sorry. Uh, <laughs> again, we return to Duchamp's, to Duchamp's defacing of the Mona Lisa, wherein his act was a means to return an untouchable image of the past to the reality of its life as an object. To remake a work is to take control by creating a new world in which the present and those who have agency in it, uh, and those in it have agency, not simply in how the past is understood, but in how it is reconstructed. While this kind of comedic copying may be misconstrued as an aggressive opposition, it is more aptly understood as the use of the past to find a new way for making sense of the present. Duchamp had no need for angst or aggression against da Vinci, only towards what had become of his work. It seems this type of activity inevitably comes with a level of cynicism. Copying, not being seen as a sincere act of art production, but as a self-serving program to benefit only the creator of the bastardized second version. Though, the, though Elmir may be called a cynic, Studerbrand escapes that label. As they are both copyists, however, their shared professions demand a level of reverence and care for the subject of their copies, though this may be hidden behind what seems to be disrespect. The cynicism we suppose exists in the copy may simply be an attempt not to insult, but to give an old work new meaning and a new kind of legibility that will again be obscured by the, in the future by the passage of time. Now, on to cynicism. Mm -hmm. so, the next, uh, so the next slide. Pretty cynical. Um, <laughs> next slide. Oh, pretty cool. Diogenes of Sino, also known as Diogenes the Cynic, was a Greek philosopher and a contemporary of Plato. A student of Antisthenes, the founder of cynicism, Diogenes is also credited as the main influence on the branch of Greek philosophy known as Stoicism. He believed life was best lived simply, and that through its growth, his own society had become incompatible with true happiness. Living an ascetic life, he held a great deal of disdain for much of Plato's philosophy, as he believed it to be fundamentally opaque and abstract. To Diogenes, philosophy in the abstract did little for the living, as life is never abstract. Known for his public taunting and belittling of Plato, Diogenes would at times go so far as to disrupt his lectures by loudly eating during the discussion. <laughs> no one's no one's jokes out here. I was hoping. Um, this somewhat childish revolt against the tastemaker of philosophy came from Diogenes' stance of embodying his beliefs, not merely discussing them. Though seemingly callow, the actions of Diogenes were willfully absurd and alienating. Two characteristics that also gave him the opportunity to be more than simply cynical and become, at times, genuinely funny. The definition of a cynic, to ensure we all share some common ground, is someone who believes everyone is motivated only by self-interest, or someone who has a general skepticism of the possibilities presented. Creative production branded as cynical tends to be categorized as such because of its levity and denial of self-serious demeanor most visual art assumes. Like Diogenes' farcical attacks on Plato, this attitude, whether intentionally or not, 
seems to belittle the importance of the discourse surrounding a serious subject, in this case, art. Cynicism, however, does not need to attack a well-defined target to antagonize it, as Diogenes found in Plato. It need only lack severity or assumed self-importance. Though at times, in art, this may just be laziness or bad art, and it takes a discerning eye to tell the difference between the two. This being said, an attitude of cynicism is too readily projected onto works with seemingly no malintent. Works that are merely whimsical or playful are described as foremost cynical by those seriously invested in the art world. This tendency, towards, this tendency points towards a frequently occurring correlation between cynicism and fun, for it seems that fun misplaced becomes cynicism to some. As in art, a smile can be the same as flipping the bird. This unintentional relationship illustrates how easily intentions are misread and artworks misclassified, far from their intended milieu. Where the fields of art, comedy, and cynicism do find common ground, however, is in their search to expose a kind of truth. Here the well-worn cliche that things are funny because they are true, or perhaps better to say, things are funny to people who believe them to be true, and there is a difference, holds up and proposes a path for comedy and art to be more, in comedy and art, to be more than merely jaded or malicious observations. Some artists may see the art world as Diogenes saw his own, increasingly alienated from simple truths and speaking specifically of art, increasingly bloated by critical theory and an impulse towards obscure references that serve to obfuscate instead of explain. After I read this, I also realized obfuscate is a very obfuscating word. Um, as Diogenes attacks as Diogenes' attacks on Plato, the work of the cynical artist may appear juvenile, absurd, or merely obtuse. It is, however, this release from an attempt to appear intelligent and directly comment on the subjective understanding of the current state of affairs that may actually bring out a reassessment of the values that govern contemporary visual art. The first, sorry, the fight initiated by the cynical attitude is rarely against an individual's choice. But instead, the structure that supports, that supports choices that are so unproductive for anyone besides the individual artist. And it is, that, it is that type of attitude that cynics believe they see in other people. Though Diogenes aimed to change not art, but society, by extolling the values of simplicity as a path to happiness, he was eventually confronted with the impossibility of his task, and his reaction was to act out. His actions, if not capable of changing society, would at least force people to face what he believed to be their true nature. This mutual repulsion from excessive complexity, shared by both comedy and early cynics, proposes the problem of how we can then reconcile it with art's entirely valid, serious, and studious nature, and would allow its complexity that is derived from a prolonged and serious investigation. Perhaps works of art attempting to address comedy shouldn't exist in the realm of art at all, but only beside it as funny objects using their own criteria, respecting the sophistry of both disciplines. Uh, this, is from, this is an artwork from Carl Valentine, who was a, uh, a comedian in, uh, post in Weimar Republic, uh, Germany, and he made these kind of like sort of silly objects, and this one's called um, Bottled uh, Train Engine Steam. Um, so they're these kind of little jokes that sort of work as, as artworks and sort of don't. Um, (laughs) 
This would allow comedy to avoid the creation of false catacombs of meaning beneath its surface and give art the autonomy from a reverence it desires. To only return to segregation of these two worlds after this entire discussion, however, is not a realistic or productive conclusion and would leave us no closer to conceiving a more productive coexistence. Next slide. Though instantly suspect as a solution, there is, however, sincerity. Comedy reminds us of our follies, of which there are plenty. While critical theory that un well, the critical theory that underpins art seems to ignore the levity and breadth of human experience, while rejecting the basic nature of human beings as full of mistakes and without theory, simply alive. Diogenes, for his part, had no pretensions towards who should or could comprehend the ideas, his ideas, just as comedy is never willfully obscure as a tool to place itself above an audience. While comedy may be accused of populism, it seems more apt to describe it as having retained an essential and understandable value, which art often seems to have lost as its purpose in contemporary society is constantly under scrutiny, both from those within and outside of the art world. Next slide. One of the few surveys of comedy and art, a compilation titled The Artist Joke, poses a question in its introduction as to why there has never been a well-scrutinized overview of comedy in theory or philosophy. This question is asked as though a critical endeavor into comedy is essential, but it seems to miss a blatant point that this lack of investigation makes so obvious. It's democracy. Um, comedy's ability to exist under the radar of critical thought, by and large, is a testament to its basic importance. Comedy is directly accessible without the need of complex explanation. Instead, it uses observation and analysis of culture as the primary elements in its toolbox. Comedy doesn't need philosophy because it is a reflection still essential and near enough to life to be understood. Perhaps the solution then is to allow comedy within art the luxury of ignorance from posterity and to seek, to, and seek instead to engage with the importance of its immediate affect, the affect of the current moment, which may in time, with some luck, remain funny and meaningful but it will never have the chance to do so if it is not to take the risk of potential obsolescence. To end, without sounding too trite on a well-worn subject, that kind of risk-taking is perhaps the only way important art of any kind is ever made. Thank you.
uh, that I couldn't really work into the text. Um, I'll, yeah, okay, okay. I'll, um, I'll, I'll give a little speech and then I'll tell you the anecdotes. Okay, so Seth has this project. I, I, I assume it's ongoing. Is it ongoing? It's ongoing. Okay, okay, okay. So for some of you, this title may sound familiar. Um, I heard a fly. I don't care if I kill a fly. I'd kill a fly. It is the first title in Stephanie Williams' ongoing project, Potential Titles for Essays. Simply put, in this project, potential titles are exchanged for potential essays. <laughs> ideas for ideas, tip for tap. As this inventory of titles grew in size, I'd recognize a title that sounded like our friend Max, or read a title in kooky prose personifying our friend Christoph. Upon entering our shared studio, I'd find myself mulling over the large poster listing this inventory. And at the risk of sounding conceited, I hoped somewhere in this mass of anonymity that one of them was me. Next thing, I feared another had slipped from my mouth. At times, I'd hoped one would soon be gifted to me, but instead this title found me. So um, besides causing conspiracies, uh, this project addresses Steph's interest in the inherently collaborative process of art making, writing, curating, and coming to ideas. And before I knew, I'd heard a fly, I don't care if I kill a fly, I'd kill a fly, it was a potential title, possibly before Steph knew. Um, it clung like an insect to a page, on a tack to a wall of our old apartment together. It suited our apartment, considering the building's notoriety for vermin. <laughs> Upon writing this introduction, I forgot the name of our former apartment and typed our address into Google. Underneath Vancouver View Terrace were links to bedbugregistry.com. All down the page. All down the page. Um, so apart from a few incidents in my childhood, when it comes to killing insects, I by no means a sadist. Don't worry about me. So the notorious magnifying glass is not my repertoire. A few times on the porch, one after another, I tore the legs off a daddy long leg, administering this antidote to cruel gymnastics. And lastly, the home I grew up in shares real estate with a giant ant colony. Inspired at the enormity of them, I spent my allowance on chocolate and fulfilled the quirks of my culinary desires with chocolate ants. To this day, if lightly tapped, the mouths of the electrical outlets will trickle a stream of fried ant carcasses. Not kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, they just, they just come if you tap it. <laughs> These days, I try to direct all insects out my window first before killing them. Though, this consideration is rarely extended to flies. Instead, I look forward to the accidental events that arise from their death and have spawned this story. Okay, so, um, when I wrote this, it was a little while ago, and so I tried to return to it with some new material. 
So I interviewed some people, but like loosely, so I can't even call it an interview, really. But um, <laughs> uh, so, so there's like this bug when you when you tree plant, and they're called noceums. Does anyone know about yeah. noceums? Yeah. yeah. Okay, everyone does. I've never heard about this. Okay. So it's hilarious because noceums are like translucent and noceum. They bite you, and you can't see them. It's, like, it's ridiculous. But it's so weird that like a bug would be called a pun. <laughs> and that's like their name, but like I haven't looked into their, I don't know, Latin, their Latin name. I'd be nerdy, but I never see them. Another another anecdote, um, my friend Sean, upon telling me, or upon telling him about uh, this story, told me he, he had climbed up this mountain to um, Mount Benson, it's like the mountain you climb in Nanaimo, which I have not climbed yet. I, I'm still not fully in Nanaimo night, Nanaimo life. And, uh, and he went there with his dog and took mushrooms, but that's not, that's not the climax, so I don't want to look at limit it to mushrooms. Anyway, so he went there and he slapped a mosquito. And I guess he's, he has a really young, um, uh, close connection to to bugs, and he felt really guilty after slapping this mosquito. And so um, he watched it for a little while to see how it would respond. And the mosquito, like, it was totally going to die, so he's like, how do I put it out of its misery? So he decided to take in his hand and um, rip off its head. And I, like, I've never, I've never thought of having such an intimate experience with a bug, right? Like, finding, finding this body part, like, usually we just smush it, right? But, like, finding its head and, and deliberately ripping it off to give it some dignity so it dies properly and without pain. Um, so he took off its head and he named it Frederica. Um, I don't have a name for my bug, but, uh, yeah, so... Okay, let's start with the story. Excuse me if there's some grammatical issues there. Um, we were, oh wait, okay. So, so I got this for the talk and it doesn't work so well. <laughs> so I thought it could um, kind of crop up my voice, but it's just really shitty, so it sounds like this. <laughs> it sounded like an airplane before, but now it just wasn't plastic. We were distracted from our dinner. Shortly, we were standing on chairs instead of sitting. Our food, our, our food closer to our feet than our mouths. And with a flyer repurposed, we aimed at the air. Fervencies increased our momentum but eclipsed our accuracy, and we quickly lost sight of it. The silence muzzled us quiet, and like a button, we'd been paused and muted. This stillness, or, sorry, in the stillness, our eyes rolled back like boiled eggs on a wet counter. With gelatinous grace, our eyes toppled in our sockets, scanning the walls in slow motion. Its patchy buzz changed with each room, harmonizing with the fluorescence, 
in one, harmonizing with the fluorescence in one, before retreating to the noise of the fan in another. As it amplified, the triggers of our elbows swelled with tension, ready to release at the sight of it. We, were, we weren't going to eat it, nor would we end up consuming the mass already dead on our plates. It was summer, in a south-facing kitchen. Your shirt was already off, while mine clung to me, crinkling with the sweat puddles and folds in my belly, as the late afternoon beat my back dry. Sticky and hot, the air was encouraged by your sweat and dampened the fibers of the newspaper. As pulp met the pores of your grip, ink bled into the margins of the print, a seeping, a seeping as slight as the fleck of fly blood now streaked across the wall. Motionless, it had curled its body, its back legs facing the ceiling. We'd stopped the buzzing grayscale and silenced it to a fallen black dot, a period. But having taken up more time than intended, its demise only prolonged our stress. There were crumbs in the hairs of your chest and food at the corners of your lips. Your little bat teeth were exposed and clenched so tight you'd never know there was a cave behind them. Impervious to intake, this little white wall possessed its foundations in the wrinkles and swollen veins of your forehead. I'm trying to paint you like it was only you who was acting crazy. But it looked like this. Bitten to the core of their little white sunsets, my nails met the horizon of my lips, while my shoulders encroached the lobes of my ears like 80s padding. I sat there expectantly, a permanent dip in my cheek as I chewed at its pink insides. Death's evidence clung to the kitchen. We killed the fly, but you'd think it was more than a fly we had tried to kill. It's only a fly, but really it wasn't the fly at all. It was the way the fly moved and how the sound of its moving suspended everything else. And under a grand, an underground evolution left out a muffler, making everything else seem secondary to it, clenching time like an itch, and like an itch does. Embarrassed at ourselves and the behavior of one another, we scrubbed with wet, wet sponges more worked up than before. And there, among muted maroons and blacks, were vibrant teals, yellows, and reds. Scuffs of ink were now unmistakably transferred to the divots of, across the wall. Inspired, an irritable pursuit was short-circuited. With the pressure to kill the fly and resume calm conversation rerouted, we sought a patch of wall in my bedroom. With green tape and scrap paper, we approximated the distance of a field for a fly, a, a battlefield in this case. At first, swatting fulfilled a kind of therapy. In each slap, advertisements of cleaning products with smiling families, high heels, swimsuits, brands, and an excess of numbers were humbled on the wall. We used the images for their colors. Lacking blue, turn to the size, or sorry, turn to the page with President's Choice. <laughs> Lacking purple, use the, this Reitman's plus size sweater. Stacks of signifiers were made illegible, and their desires rendered inoperative. 
We took turns as we ran out of breath, learning some directions were more effective, some divots more porous, and the heavier the roll, the greater the mark. Torn scraps recruited the floorboards, catching the wind of our strikes. They congregated with dust bunnies in the corners. And as in a Pavlovian experiment, the fly had reconditioned us, pairing death with drawing and waste with value. We had, we had to grip the newspaper hard so as not to lose hold of the paper, hold of the layer. Our hands began to ache, and occasionally the slopes of our knuckles grazed the wall. Another, roll, another round of strikes with both left and right arms, and my turn was up. I stepped back to watch. I wondered what the sound, what, what the sounded like, what the sounded like outside. I turned my head and realized it had gotten dark. My window was now a black mirror. There we were, sweaty and red-faced, and the serene pasture on the wall resembled nothing of our evening, nor us. <laughs>